Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Zoe Griffith. And today we have with us Fariba Zarinbaf, Associate Professor of History at University of California at Riverside. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here, and thank you for inviting me to uh, to kind of um, discuss my pro- my new project on on Galata and um, answer some of your questions. Fariba is going to be speaking specifically about the capitulations. The capitulations have been a tangible symbol or marker of Ottoman decline about the intrusion of European capital and traders into the empire. And often people mistakenly think of the capitulations as a notion of to capitulate, to surrender to these European powers. Of course, this is, as as many of us know, this is far from the truth. Capitulations comes from the word for capital or the heading of a treaty in which these were located. And today, Fariba is going to speak about the capitulations, their role within early modern Galata. And specifically, we're going to explore kind of the role of port cities in the Ottoman Empire, the legal frameworks that allowed them to exist. And even we're going to try to get into the development of an Ottoman bourgeoisie uh, in the early modern period. So why don't we start off with this just, you know, simple question. What are the capitulations? How did they start? How would you describe them? Well, thank you so much. I think you uh, brought up some important points that, you know, I would like to touch upon. And I'm glad that you agree with me about the misunderstanding of of the whole legal system, uh, both among, you know, average people, you know, in this country and among some scholars, um, Turkish scholars specifically. And, um, you know, if you look at some of the recent works uh, by Timur Kuran um, and, uh, you know, uh, and others, uh, I think, you know, you will see that that kind of misunderstanding continues to this date. So I'm going to kind of um, maybe summarize some of these misconceptions and then tell you why I think it's important to revisit this whole historiography and to look at, you know, these legal treaties again and maybe, you know, come up with a different vocabulary. So one of the reasons I got interested in um, in the capitulations is because I consider myself, you know, a legal and social historian and an urban historian. And I have done, as you know, I have just published a book on Istanbul. So my next project is going to be on the port of Galata because, you know, I believe that even though Galata was part of Istanbul, uh, it developed, it has a very different history. And part of that different history is largely due to a different legal framework, uh, which led to the rise of Galata as a very important European port. Um, so I'm, again, you know, kind of trying to frame the history of Galata within a kind of legal framework, but from a different perspective this time. And actually, you know, I prefer to use the Ottoman term ahnameh rather than capitulation, because I think, as you pointed out, when you use the term capitulation, which is the Western term used by Westerners, a lot of people tend to misunderstand it. And, and I think that kind of misunderstanding is, is today with us, and it has really kind of shaped the historiography, you know, of, of uh, the Ahnames. And, uh, and in general, I think if you take it from there, the whole question of the Ottoman economic mind also comes into play. And one of the questions that a lot of scholars are still trying to grapple with is, you know, why did the Ottoman state, uh, starting with Mehmet II, grant these treaties to Western traders and Western nations. Secondly, were these treaties bilateral or were they unilateral? I think the tendency is to believe that they were unilateral. And then I think thirdly uh, is, you know, the impact of these treaties, these ahnames, these commercial treaties, on the rise of an Ottoman bourgeoisie. You know, was there an Ottoman bourgeoisie? If so, how can we define them? You know, did these treaties impact, you know, their rise? Or... uh, did these treaties lead to the decline of the Ottoman economy, Ottoman traders, you know, and uh, production? Um, and I think it's also important to kind of periodize it because I think the tendency is among the scholars to look at the second half of the 19th century and to, you know, the developments that took place in the second half of the 19th century and then to project back, you know, into the 16th century changes that took place in the 19th century as European powers became dominant, you know, as their, you know, kind of economic power uh, became dominant and as Ottoman markets, you know, were kind of incorporated into the, into the European economy. So many scholars tend to 
uh, blame these treaties uh, for the incorporation of the Ottoman economy into the world economy. So what I have done is to kind of push this back as, as far as possible and to look at the origins of these treaties um, and to look at specific spaces where these treaties were in practice. So I'm focusing on Galata, which, you know, was uh, a unique port. Uh, it was a Genoese colony, one of the first ports that, you know, uh, received this kind of treaty in 1352 one of the first, you know, Ottoman treaties that was granted to the Genoese, and then in 1453, we have the text of the 1453 treaty that Mehmed II signed with the Genoese community in Galata, so we know a great deal more about that one, which became a model for uh, the other Ahnames that were signed with France, with England, with the Netherlands, you know, and, and then with other European powers later on. So if we look at these Ahnames, I mean, what privileges do they give? I mean, what actually is in the text of them? It's a very good question. I think, you know, if you look at the first one that, you know, we have a text of, uh, the 1453 Ahname, it's very clear that it was signed between Mehmet II and the Genoese community of Kalata because of the nature of the takeover of that town. Uh, as you know, Constantinople was taken by force. Uh, it was subjected to, you know, looting and plunder. You know, it's, uh, some of its churches were converted into mosques. So uh, when the Genoese community saw the takeover of uh, Constantinople, they decided to submit peacefully to Mehmet II, which I think is really crucial to understand that, you know, the way Galata was taken over by Mehmet II was very different from the way Constantinople was taken. So as a result, um, they negotiated a treaty with Mehmet II to grant them protection for their lives, for their property, for their churches, to also negotiate freedom of trade anywhere in the empire, and to also, you know, uh, focus on what kind of taxes they would pay. So this was really the first, you know, I think, uh, extensive treaty that um, Mehmet II granted to Galata and to the Genoese community. Then uh, later on, you know, he gives the same treaty to the Venetians, and to other Italian city-states. So I think as such, it's very important because it guaranteed the protection of property, lives, and commerce of European nations, starting with the Genoese and then the others. Another important part of this treaty was um, sort of legal immunity, I would say. So uh, in other words, you know, uh, European nations could have their own law courts, and they could have, they could be subjected to their own laws. They didn't have to pay Ottoman taxes if they remained, you know, uh, subjects of European nations. So I think this first treaty became then a kind of model that the Ottomans took and then, you know, kind of granted to other European nations, you know, like France, uh, the Netherlands, and England. That's extremely interesting because you mention uh, the protection of life and property and freedom of trade. I mean, these are all very mm-hmm you know, 19th century liberal sounding um, provisions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit then about if there were any sort of major milestones in the development of the capitulations. But I mean, I'm sure between the 15th century and the 19th century, um, what were some turning points? Some of the turning points, yes. I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think what um, happened uh, to kind of show that this was sort of charter, a commercial charter, that's why I don't like to use the term capitulation. Because if you look at the text, you know, the majority of the articles, later on they become much more extensive, you know, deal with commerce and the protection of life and property, legal immunities, uh, autonomy. So I think as such, it is like a commercial charter that you see in European cities that, you know, these group of merchants receive. And then, you know, merchants from other nations want exactly the same thing. So there's a connection between all these treaties, if you take the 1453 as the first one, and look at the one that was given to France in 1535, you know, later renewed, you know, by, and they have to be renewed by every sultan. So when the time comes for the renewal of these, you know, ahnames, uh, these nations can add more articles, they can negotiate. So they're subject to change. They can also be revoked. So there is no permanence to them. The articles can be completely eliminated. And I think they're also granted uh, from the uh, you know, uh, position of uh, peace and friendship. So the Ottoman state granted them to nations with whom it had a treaty of friendship. So I think that aspect is very important. It wasn't from a position of weakness, but it was to strengthen alliances. Are there examples of Ahnames being revoked? No, we don't have uh, examples of Ahnames being revoked, but certain articles could be revoked or revised. And the other question I had is, I mean, how did 
trading exactly work in the empire? Could a foreign trader just come into the empire, start run, running around the empire and just buying and selling goods? Or were they restricted to certain ports in which they had to make all their interactions? I mean, what, what privileges exactly did they, they receive under these Ottomans? Uh, thank you so much. I think that's a very, very important uh, question. I think there's a tendency among scholars, again, uh, to believe that you know these capitulations gave unlimited rights to foreign nations, their traders, their ambassadors, and their consuls, and you know the, the Mustaman merchants, the protected merchants. And I think that's really another misconception because the Ottoman state always had the ultimate power, right, to revoke you know these articles or even the treaties, not to sign them. And the fact that every sultan had to renew them, you know, I think is a very important fact. Because, in fact, you can see in the archives uh, when a new sultan comes to power, you know, immediately, you know, France or, uh, you know, England would send an ambassador saying, what about our treaty? We'd like to renew it. So there are serious negotiations going on. And that's where, you know, the Ottoman state could insert itself and change some of these articles. But what happened, I think is that, you know, when they gave, you know, an important treaty to one nation, like France, then the others, you know, wanted exactly the same thing. So that's why I think there is a kind of very important connection between all these treaties. You see, for example, one important issue that comes up uh, all the time is the question of the customs rates, you know, whether they should be 4% or 3%. So when England gets the 3% customs rate in 1601, you know, France immediately wants the same thing. Um, And they receive it, they get it whether they should pay, you know, customs, you know, once, you know, or, you know, also pay some of these internal dues and taxes. And the internal dues and taxes do not completely disappear. They're still there. You know, I think that's another tendency that scholars, you know, tend to, without looking at the text of these treaties, to, to assume that, you know, uh, foreign merchants only pay 3% and no internal dues, but they are paying those taxes as well. Now, um, every foreign merchant has to receive a barat patent of appointment from the Ottoman state. They have to apply for, th- for these barats. And the barats are documents that contain some of the articles of the atnames. So when a merchant or a dragoman receives a barat, it's going to specifically state some of the exemptions from taxes that, you know, that merchant is going to have, you know, specific rights. Um, and those barats also have to be renewed. Uh, so when someone is applying for, for a barat, usually they have to go to the port or, you know, send someone, you know, usually the consul on their behalf. Uh, they have to submit an application, a petition, and then they receive one within a couple of weeks. And we have the text of all these petitions and sometimes even, you know, copies of these barats that merchants do receive. So I'm trying to say that, you know, the state was always in control of who was getting these rights and privileges. They had information on these people. They could check their backgrounds. Uh, they could also not give them these barats. So, so you couldn't have thousands of these merchants running around without actually, you know, deserving these barats because they had to receive these uh, these permissions. On top of it, each time a ship came uh, to Galata or any of the Ottoman ports, they had to also ask or petition for an internal visa. You know, sefine yol hükmü or teskire. And just like the Barats, you know, the consular ambassador had to go to the port and submit a petition with the name of the captain, you know, what ship they're bringing in, you know, what kind of merchandise they're bringing in, and then receive a permission for that ship to travel from point A to B, or for a merchant to travel from Izmir to Istanbul. So you can see that there are lots of checkpoints where the background of every, you know, merchant or, you know, sea captain or ship has to be checked, you know, in the center, in Istanbul. And then, you know, for them to be able to move around. Yes, they have to be confined to certain places. They can't just go anywhere in the empire. I mean, how is there like a point in the Mediterranean where that boundary starts? Or is it it's the first port they come and then they have to get an internal visa? You know, if they're coming, from, for example, from Marseille, you know, they would maybe stop, you know, somewhere in Crete and then, you know, Izmir. So they have these ports of calls, you know, Alexandria, depending what they're bringing in or Galata. So Izmir becomes, you know, the most important you know, port city uh, in the 18th century for uh, imports and exports. You know, it's also exporting a lot. Galata is importing both from the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. That's why I think Galata is very important because we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the trade of the Mediterranean Sea and ignore the Black Sea. Galata is a kind of cross points between the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, and Asia. So you have, you know, spices coming in, you know, from India. You have silk coming from Persia. You have grain coming from the Black Sea, and, you know, you have, you know, uh, other goods coming from Anatolia, and then from there, you know, going either south or north. 
So that's why I think Galata is very important because in addition to the Mediterranean trade, it's also the hub for the Black Sea trade. Um, another, I think, you know, revision that I'd like to make, you know, in my project is that we tend to always emphasize European trade. And I'm not sure, you know, uh, how important it is in the 18th century. In the 19th century, it becomes very important. But I think in the 18th century, uh, Asian and Eastern trade is still very important, as is local and domestic trade. This would be a, a great time to actually explore the the role of Galata. Um, your, I mean, your past work has been sort of urban history, history of Istanbul. Um, so how do you see Galata in particular as fitting into maybe a urban history of Istanbul? You mentioned, I think, very, very rightly, the Black Sea trade, the Mediterranean trade, the spice trade, and the role that it plays in Ottoman internal trade as being really, really important. So. Right. You know, for the provisioning of Istanbul, Galata is very important. Because since the Genoese times, as you remember, you know, Genoese, the Genoese have three, you know, major port cities. One is on the Black Sea, Kaffa. The other one is Galata, and the other one is Kios. Okay, so Galata is connected to both uh, until, you know, Izmir rises and then Kios, you know, kind of declines. Then it's connected to, uh, to Izmir. And I think, so it's trade as a port, it serves Istanbul in a very important way. So when you look at, for example, the items of trade that I have been studying in the 18th century, a lot of grain is coming in, both by, you know, French ships, because I'm focusing on French trade, and local it's also coming from Egypt, Alexandria, so a lot of food stuff. So Galata is very important for the provisioning of the city, which I think is another point that tends to get ignored uh, for imports. I think the second point, which I mentioned before, is you know the trade of Black Sea, which was important before the Ottomans took Galata. Okay, so that goes back to the Genoese, right? So in, as such, it's very important. Then um, I think Farouk Tabak uh, argues that you know in the 16th century you have a shift in trade from the south to the north. And that's why Galata and Constantinople or Istanbul become very important. And by north, I think he's talking about the Black Sea and the Balkans. And remember, you know, the Balkans become very important for the Ottoman Empire. So Galata plays also an important role in the trade of the Balkans. You know, and I'm, for example, looking at Dubrovnik as another important port city that has very similar legal framework to Galata. It's a tribute-paying, you know, port city to the Ottoman Empire. So it has a great deal of autonomy. They also have a capitulation that they receive at the same time, around the 1481 from the Ottoman state, you know, from Mehmet. And when you look at, and it, then it gets renewed, you know, the, that capitulation, it's very similar to the one that Mehmet grants to the Genoese community in Galata. So this is not the first time that you have a great deal of autonomy if you look at, you know, uh, Ragus or Dubrovnik and Kios, you see that there are lots of similarities. And so the question arises, why did Mehmet II let these ports remain as they were before and have even more extensive legal autonomy and rights? So I believe that the Ottomans continued the Byzantine tradition, but also built on it. Um, did How long was Galata administered? with this autonomous legal framework? When did it, or what, was it at some point incorporated into? It's a very good question. I'm looking at it right now. So I'm looking at uh, the 15th century to see what Mehmet II does when he incorporates Galata, whether he tries to impose some sort of, you know, Ottoman control the way he did, you know, over Constantinople, or whether he allows it to be as it was under the Byzantines. I think when... Uh, you read, you know, the work of Inalgic, you know, he believes that, you know, Mehmet II tries to incorporate Galata into the rest of the city. Um, I think that's correct. Maybe initially he tried. But when you look at the content of the, of the treaty of 1453, the Ahname, it's very clear that there's a lot of continuity. And I would also add to it that the Ottomans actually developed some of these rights further. Why did they do that? Because they already have a plural legal system. Okay, so the Sharia itself allows, right, for considerable legal autonomy for the non-Muslim communities. You know, they have that system in place. So together with these Ahname, I think, you know, these people, uh, the non-Muslim Europeans can negotiate a great deal of autonomy for themselves. So they're using both the Sharia and also the Ahname, you know, to really kind of negotiate as much autonomy as they can get from the Ottoman state. But at the same time, uh, the Ottoman state has its officials in Galata. The Qadi is one important, you know, official who is in charge of a lot, you know, a good amount of municipal, commercial, legal issues. 
Then you have the Subashu, right? The chief of day police. Uh, he's he's very important. You have a voivoda, you know, who acts like you know the mayor of Galata. So there are some important officials that Mehmet II appoints to Galata. So he wants to make sure that it is part of Constantinople, you know, that the Ottoman center has some kind of authority over it. But at the same time, by signing this treaty, not only with Genoa, but also with Venice and other Italian city-states and European nations, him and other Ottoman sultans are granting all these rights to a variety of Europeans. So you can see that, you know, so those are also increasing. And, and those capitulations, like the capitulation of 1740, has more than 80 articles, which was granted to France. When we speak mm-hmm. about the impact of, um, uh, you know, on, on these ahnames, on, these, on this new legal framework that is kind of a development from the medieval legal framework, uh, you know, are there port cities in the Ottoman Empire that don't necessarily have it? I mean, when you just cross the Golden Horn, and you go to Uncapanera, you know, any other port within Istanbul or other places, like, can we, do we have kind of a comparative experiment where we can look and see, well, this is what a port city looks like without this uh, autonomous legal framework? I think that's a very good question. And that's where I think we have to kind of carry out comparative work to look at Galata, you know, Izmir has been studied, you know, pretty much for the 18th century because Izmir becomes, you know, a very uh, important hub in the 18th century. Kios, you know, uh, played that role before. I think we have to look at Alexandria. Uh, we haven't really done that kind of comparative work. We also should look at Western European ports like Venice. Uh, now, Natalie Rothman has done recently a very interesting work on Venice, and he compares the role of some of these uh, merchants in Venice to the ones in the Ottoman Empire, in Istanbul and Galata. And I think she concludes that Ottoman merchants had more extensive rights, even when they traded in Venice, let's say, than, you know, European merchants. So, for example, when, you know, a German Jew arrives to Venice, in order for that person to function as a broker, he usually has to convert to Catholicism. But when an Ottoman Jewish merchant comes to Venice, he doesn't have to because he has the protection of these treaties. So it's really important, you know, as such, I think, for Ottoman merchants to be able to trade under the protection of these treaties elsewhere, not only in the rest of the Ottoman Empire, but in other port cities in Europe. Well, in Europe, you had some of these rights, too. So when, for example, uh, Christians traded in Muslim Spain, in Seville, you know, they had some of these rights as well, and vice versa. But what happened in Europe is that in Europe, you know, as they shifted to a uniform legal system, they did away with these rights. So the Jews were subject, you know, to the laws of the crown, right? Or they had to leave or convert. You know, whereas, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, the system continued till the 20th century, till World War I, when they were, you know, abolished. Uh, and so did the plural legal system, which you don't have in Europe. So scholars like Timur Kuran have looked at it as a liability. You know, he argues that this is something that, you know, kind of brought about the decline of the empire, because you have a plural legal system. There's no transparency. But I would argue the opposite. I would argue, in fact, that these rights gave, you know, Ottoman merchants uh, or, you know, European merchants a great deal of autonomy that we don't usually assume existed in the Ottoman Empire. So maybe they were the foundation of the rise of a bourgeoisie, right? And furthermore, you know, human rights. I mean, we can go on. I can, I can tell you more about what I think happened, but... Uh, well, yeah, l- please do. I mean, let's think about or let's talk about the um, what exactly, first of all, what was the sort of plural legal framework? What was this legal pluralism that, I mean, it's forum shopping, right, that right, we're talking exactly. about? So what yes. were the forums? Who was shopping where? These are really interesting questions, right. I think. So, for instance, you know, when we talk about, you know, the legal autonomy of these various communities, like the Demi communities in the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Christians and Jews, what did it mean? What did it mean? You know, when we are dealing with you know French subjects. Uh, so, based on these capitulations, you know, more specifically the 1535 capitulation that was granted to France, French subjects were uh, subject to their own laws and legal system. So, i.e., if a French merchant was trading in Galata, and he, you know, broke a law, you know, uh, committed a crime, uh, he would be tried by the French court in Galata that was attached to the French embassy. But if he got involved in a legal dispute with an Ottoman subject, then, you know, they would have to go to the Qadi court or the case would be submitted to the Divan Humayun. Uh, there are also, you know, um, 
uh, it also depends on how much money was involved. So any dispute dealing with uh, involving less than 4,000 akja would be dealt with in the Ottoman courts. You know, above 4,000 akja, they would go to Divan Humayun. So uh, what would happen if someone wasn't happy with the result of the Qadi's decision? They could always submit it to the Imperial Council. And a lot of merchants in Galata actually submitted their cases to the Imperial council where they were sure that they would receive, you know, a better justice. And of course, you know, uh, as you know, the Ottoman legal system was not just based on the Sharia, but you have also the Kanun. In addition, you know, to the legal systems of, you know, the Christian Jewish communities. So um, there's a great deal of flexibility, I would argue. So if, you know, uh, there's a legal dispute between a French subject, you know, and an Ottoman subject, they could take it to the Qadi's court or to the Imperial Council. Uh, to the provincial court, if this happens, you know, to take place in a provincial court. So one could argue that, you know, there are these layers, you know, of um, courts that, you know, would give um, any person in the Ottoman Empire, whether that person was foreign or local, a great deal of flexibility. So I would argue that, you know, contrary to what Timur Kuran believes, is that, you know, uh, these subjects or these traders had a great deal of flexibility to get what they wanted. You mentioned uh, briefly this notion of an Ottoman bourgeoisie. Does this? I mean, how does it develop? How does it emerge from you know these rights and this legal framework that uh, the capitulations provide, or the ahnames provide? Right. Um, so you know, one of the I think dominant paradigms in our field has been that there was no Ottoman bourgeoisie, and the reason people have argued uh, for this is that they believe that the Ottoman state. Uh, was always, you know, a kind of provisionist, fiscalist, and traditional state. It was an absolute state. It didn't really allow for the rise of a middle class. Um, and I think, you know, the way people have, you know, kind of approached this topic is in a very kind of rigid system. So even if, you know, you had an Ottoman state that was absolutist in the 16th century, does that mean that that state, you know, remained so in the 18th century? You know, or was it also transforming? Do you have a sort of dynamism in the system where there's a lot of give and take, i.e., you know, uh, a merchant is always, you know, able to submit a petition to the Ottoman state and get what he or she wants? Or, you know, the guilds, the same thing. So I believe that, you know, because of these capitulations, which gave, you know, a great deal of uh, legal rights to European merchants, what happened is that in time, by the 18th century, Ottoman merchants wanted exactly the same rights i.e. the notion of private property was, becomes very important, the protection of your life and property becomes very important because they're specifically stated in these treaties. So by the 18th century, not only the Dimmi merchants, you know, the Greek, Armenian, and Jewish merchants want exactly the same rights, right? The Muslims also want the same rights. And I think this happens in the 18th century when the state starts responding to the interests of its own merchants. You know, this is the beginning maybe of the rise of an Ottoman bourgeoisie in the 18th century. And in the 19th century, the state creates its own European and Hyria merchants, right? We haven't studied, you know, those two topics extensively, but the state responds. So I'm trying to show in my work that, you know, uh, the state is very much involved and the economic life of the empire, but it's not to the detriment of the middle class. In fact, it's always trying to support their interests. So there's always a kind of back and forth. But at the same time, it has to also live by the articles of these treaties. Can you give us an example of, of um, like a petition that a merchant would send to the state? And maybe what kinds of... I mean, when you say that the state is responding, do you mean... Uh, kind of on the individual level, responding to individual complaints? Or is, do you see any sort of, um, in the sense of a bourgeois class, advocating for certain new rights? And That's a very good question, Zoe, because I think when you look at, for example, some of the sources that you have been studying, you know, i.e., you know, Shihayat Defterleri or Akiam Defterleri, uh, you will see these petitions because, you know, I have been, for example, you know, uh, looking at some of these things, you know, more specifically, as you know, in the 18th century, a lot of coffee is coming from Europe, you know, uh, from France more specifically. So that's going to undermine, you know, those importance of coffee, you know, from Egypt, right? And the argument has been made that, you know, as sugar and coffee is being imported from Europe, then, you know, the trade of Egypt, you know, Cairo declines, and traders, you know, who are trading in that branch, you know, their, their situation gets worse. 
Uh, but when you look at the actual petitions, you see that, no, they're organizing. You know, so they send a petition, you know, to the Yuan Humayun saying, you know, so-and-so uh, is bringing coffee, you know, from France, but we don't want this coffee to be sold in the Mr. Trashers, uh, in the spice market. And the state responds by saying, okay, if you're bringing, you know, coffee, if you're, you know, bringing it from Europe, you know, it's Indies coffee that the French are importing, they should be only sold in certain shops in Galata. They cannot be sold in the Egyptian market. So here, you know, so you can see clearly that um, these merchants are organizing themselves. They're organizing themselves against the European merchants, i.e. the French merchants. And secondly, the state is not just protecting the French merchants, saying, okay, we have an Ahname, you can sell these goods anywhere you want, anywhere in the empire. It's saying, no, you can sell them in certain shops in Galata. And, you know, and, and Mr. Chashri said, you're still going to have coffee that's coming from Yemen, from Egypt, and, you know, and those merchants, you know, have to be protected. So that's, you know, one example that, you know, I have seen, but there are many. And I think we have to kind of look through these sources. And I think the state is trying to not only protect its own merchants, but also its own producers. It doesn't want, you know, uh, European goods to take over. So there's this kind of sense of justice, right? The interests of Ibadullah, you know, its own subjects that it always has, you know, uh, in mind. But it's not provisionist in the sense that, you know, it just wants to control and regulate trade. So I think there's a very clear understanding. It Also, you know, when it comes to the trade of grains, which is very, very important for the provisioning of the city, uh, there are certain merchants that are called miri tujar, who are in charge of importing, you know, these basic, you know, food stuff into Istanbul or the major cities. It doesn't really want the European traders to take over, you know, uh, the import of the major, you know, uh, the main food stuff into Istanbul. So I think there, too, you can see the role of the state and I think the role of the merchants to make sure that they don't lose out. I mean, uh, we have one example of kind of, you know, okay, don't sell coffee in these shops. You know, how do you stop, how do you stop someone from trading? I guess it's kind of one of the... I don't think the Ottoman state ever wants to stop anyone from trading. You know, I think their belief is that, you know, the more, the better. Uh, of course, you know, historians have believed that they're solely interested in collecting taxes. You know, that's why they open up their markets. Yes, they do have a more liberal policy than, let's say, France and England in the 18th century. They're not protective. And, you know, some scholars believe that that's a sign of their weakness. They're opening up their markets when Europe becomes, you know, very protective. And then they don't have, you know, they don't really support the interests of their own merchants. And then, therefore, they're provisionist. Um, I think, you know, if we apply, you know, uh, if we understand the Ottoman Empire as an empire that was a trading empire, then we can understand their mindset. You know, uh, they believe that everybody should be able to trade, but at the same time, there are certain areas of commerce that they want their own merchants to dominate, right? And there, they protect their own merchants, and they don't want to upset the balance. So when that balance is upset, then, you know, they have certain policies, they place certain bans, you know, or they pass on certain policies to protect their own merchants. And that happens in the beginning of the 19th century. I mean, now that we're kind of at the beginning of the 19th century, how do we get from this image of the capitulations as an attempt to, let's say, protect and develop Muslim merchants, I mean, merchants within the empire, whether Muslim or not, to, you know, by the 19th century, late 19th century image of it just being kind of a way for foreign powers and their agents to, you know, suck the strength out of the empire? That's a very good question. I think, you know, uh, one, I think, misconception that I'm trying to... um, kind of correct in my own project is that there is this tendency in the general scholarship to believe that the system got so corrupt that, you know, any European, whether he was a merchant or not, could get these barats and then become a European subject. So any Greek, Armenian, Jewish subject of the Ottoman Empire could purchase these barats from the European embassies or consulates and, and then later on become European subjects. So what was happening was that through these ahnames, the Ottoman Empire was losing its grip over its own non-Muslim subjects, right? And these subjects were becoming, you know, subjects of European nations. I think that's a great misconception. And the second misconception is on the numbers because if you look at, again, you know, some of uh, these recent works, people would mention these numbers without providing any footnotes, and then when you look at the sources and how these barats are issued, uh, you realize very quickly that, you know, the numbers don't match what you have in the sources. 
you know, the process is very, very difficult to get these barrels. So there's no way that anyone could, you know, just pay a sum of money to, to a European consul or ambassador and purchase these things and then pass it on to members of their family and become so-called, you know, the protégés of European nations. So I don't think that was going on. I think there's a great deal of, you know, uh, control in the system. And furthermore, what happens in the 19th century is the opposite. So what happens when the system gets a bit out of control, the Ottoman state creates its own European merchants, i.e. if you are a Greek, Jewish, or Armenian subject, you could purchase these barats from the Ottoman state, right, for much less, for 1,500 kurush rather than 2,000 or 3,000. And that's, that money would go to the Ottoman treasury, right? So you would have the exact same rights, but you're purchasing them from the Ottoman state. So that's why I think, you know, this is really the beginning of the rise of an Ottoman bourgeoisie, which the Ottoman state is trying to create, right? So, so and, and then you see that within 20 years, you know, the number of barats issued by the Ottoman state to its own subjects double in the 19th century. And even before that, they were trying to get rid of some of these, you know, uh, articles of the capitulations and control the system. The Europeans themselves don't like the sale of barats. You see that the Levant company constantly complains about the fact that the system is getting out of control. You know, they don't like to have Armenians and Jews and Greeks take over their trade. So they're not very happy with the situation. They complain to the Ottoman state, right? So by the 19th century, then, you know, there's a system that is set in place in order to take care of some of the corruption of the system, i.e. the sale or purchase of these barats by people who didn't deserve to have these things. Um, the second group that the state creates are the Hyria merchants. So what happens to the Muslim merchants? You know, is there a Muslim bourgeoisie? I think that's another important question that um, I think is central to this historiography because the assumption is that no, most of these merchants are Greeks, you know, there are Armenians and then there are Jews. These are the people who are benefiting not only from the Ahnames, but, you know, from the later system that the Ottoman state creates. Well, the Hyria merchants are Muslim, okay? We haven't studied them at length at all. Uh, and I think we need to. So, so that is set up for the Muslims who get exactly the same rights. You know, they have also their own shepherders, you know, who function like the dragomen. They can represent the interests of their merchants. The Iranian merchants come in and trade under that system. Uh, and, and, you know, trade with Iran also becomes very important in the 19th century. They get a similar treaty in uh, the Treaty of Erzurum that's very similar to the capitulations that's granted to the European nations. Uh, so I think in the 18th century, you do have a legal framework for the rise of an Ottoman bourgeoisie, both Muslim and non-Muslim. Um, was there a distinct division of labor then between the Hayriya merchants and the Avrupa Tujara? Um, well, I haven't done that research yet, but I think that brings me to another very important issue. So are the Muslim merchants absent from the European trade, you know, or are they part of it? I think, you know, Daniel Ponzog has tried to answer this question by arguing that, uh, well, in fact, even if Muslim merchants did not travel to Marseille or Amsterdam or London, but they formed partnerships, they invested in trade. And I have seen some of the evidence, you know, in the registers of, you know, Galata and the sigils where you have a good number of Muslim sea captains who are investing in the ships. You know, they are buying, buying shares, you know, in these ships or they are silent partners, you know, so you have this kind of, you know, Modaraba partnership where you have several people who are investing money and then you have, you know, the uh, Greek merchant or captain who's doing the trade. So that's one. Secondly, a good number of Muslim merchants are also trading on European ships. So you would have a French ship that's carrying the goods of Muslims, you know, to Alexandria, you know, to Marseille. So they're also forming partnerships, you know, with European merchants. So they are active, but they may not be physically in Marseille, but they're investing in trade. And I think we tend to also, you know, kind of believe that if they're not physically there, then they're not involved in trade. In the description you've kind of, in, in the description you've given us of the Ahnames of this, you know, new legal framework, it often seems like the Ottomans or the Ottoman state in particular is kind of constantly planning, uh, it's constantly in control of the system. You know, is there examples kind of when they lose control, when there's, you know, I mean, how do we deal with kind of things that are out of the control with that it doesn't seem like they're actually, uh, you know, all wise and all knowing, you know, how do they deal with issues like smuggling and these sorts of things? Well, I think, you know, that's a very important question. You know, where you see the Ottoman state actively intervening is, you know, uh, to make sure that 
artisans get you know the primary material first so if you're trading in silk you know they want to make sure that you know the workshops in bursa and istanbul and elsewhere get the raw silk first and then they are you know kind of exported to france you know the same thing for example the grains you know with food stuff they want to make sure that they provision their cities first and then it's exported of course you're going to have smuggling and there's no way you know they can control that uh and i think that's true everywhere not just in the ottoman empire and i think you know uh the third issue where you kind of see the tendency for them to have you know to kind of lose control is on this issue of barats that i just talked to to you about because when you look at you know the 1740 treaty which has the most articles uh given to france uh the rights of the dragoman uh there are mentioned only twice so when someone is a tarjuman or a dragoman of the french embassy or consul that person receives the same legal immunity which is like the ambassadors today you know who are in washington you know it's not very difficult to imagine why they get these rights but they're not supposed to trade right they're supposed to interpret so whenever you have a lawsuit you know in an ottoman court you have to be in the presence of a dragoman or when you submit a petition you know to the divan humayun a dragoman has to be there to translate or when you're writing a petition because in most cases you know the consuls and ambassadors didn't know ottoman so they needed people you know with skills in ottoman uh chancery you know to write these petitions um but in time these dragomen start trading and you see that developing in the 18th century so they are you know under the term dragomen you have a lot of traders um so when they get a barat they get the same exemptions as european merchants not only for themselves but for their sons and servants and at some point you know it is believed that the ottoman state loses track of who is a dragomen and who's their servant, you know, their son. So they're getting all these rights. But I think there's a misunderstanding in the sense that, you know, a lot of people think that these dragomen or the protégés become European subjects. They don't. They're still Ottoman subjects. Well, I mean, it's an interesting, let's say parallel. I mean, the kind of the Ottoman state being unable to tell who it's who's on its janissary muster rolls, you know, and even the whoever the people in charge of that uh you know you can tax farm out that position that position can i mean in a sense you get this also this you know this loss of control of you know who in the world is in their official army outside of their tax registries basically the okay i had another question which is slightly off the, which is okay so and we it seems like let me let me put it this way uh, earlier in the in the interview you mentioned that in some ways that this is kind of a medieval system that keeps developing in the ottoman mediterranean in the Ottoman world but whereas in the European side uh this kind of legal plurality comes to an end uh one is like why why did it keep developing why didn't it you know why what were the conditions that allowed legal plurality to function and you know flourish it seems and two you know if it was successful then why why in the end uh, 1922 i believe was it put to an end in um the Ottoman Empire in 1946 or 48 in Egypt I think that's a very important question and I think it brings us to this whole question that you know why does it end in Europe and why does it continue to exist in the Ottoman Empire till the 20th century even though the Ottomans try to reform it so I I think that they the state does try to reform it and the Europeans are resisting it I brought up this question to a colleague of mine and his answer he studied you know uh French Ottoman relations extensively is that well Ottoman merchants did not really venture out especially muslims to european ports partly because there's a great deal of intolerance that you have you know since the inquisitions so for example you know if an ottoman merchant shows up in marseille how safe is he going to be if he's muslim even if he's greek orthodox because the armenians and greeks are considered heretics uh, and the jews you know the case you know uh so and, and i think natalie rothman has has proven in her study that there's greater tolerance if you're an ottoman jew versus you know being a german jew uh so i think the reason why ottoman traders didn't venture out to europe in the 16th and 17th centuries is because they don't want to face persecution i think we can state that very safely and some do when they go um but they did go to places that were more open like the port of legorno uh in italy that was much more tolerant you know of diversity and they had you know jews they had 
Protestants, they had Muslims, you know, uh, trading there. And of course, they went to Venice. So the question of, you know, these treaties being unilateral or bilateral, I think has to do with whether there was a need to have these treaties to be bilateral if there were good number of, you know, autumn merchants going out to, you know, European cities, then, they, then you would make these treaties bilateral. But if the reverse is true, i.e., you know, you have more Europeans coming into your ports, and because you have this poor legal system, you just treat them as another millet, as another community. And I think that's exactly what happened. You know, they became another millet and had those rights and more. Uh, so I think, you know, the fact that they had this poor legal system longer is the nature of the Ottoman Empire. It is different from other empires. And I think Karen Barkey in her book, you know, has dealt extensively with this topic. One last quick question, which is, I mean, did this similar, did a similar system of Ahname's commercial privileges, this port, this port city and its legal system, did that develop, let's say, uh, in the kind of second biggest port, you know, Basra, in these Indian Ocean places, do you know about that at all? Well, I think they um, they would develop in these cities in the sense that you know when a European merchant is dealing anywhere in the empire, mm-hmm. they would have the same rights. It doesn't have to be just Galata; they would have the same rights in Izmir, in Alexandria, anywhere in the empire. Mm-hmm. These treaties would prevail. But you mentioned like so the Iranians only received right these types of uh, privileges, though. Um, uh, the Treaty of Erzurum, right? Right, the Treaty of Erzurum in the 19th century. Okay. So what is really interesting is that, you know, you have a similar treaty that's given to the Iranians. You know, they want the same, you know, consuls to represent, they, they're called Shepender, uh, to represent, you know, their merchants. You know, their the custom rate is 4% rather than 3%. And pretty soon you have Iranian merchants all over the empire, in Istanbul, in Trabzon, you know, all over Anatolia. Um so that also kind of, you know, uh, attracts Iranian trade to the Ottoman Empire, which, you know, previously wasn't there because of the Shiite-Sunni divide, because Iranian Shia merchants didn't feel, feel safe mm-hmm. in Ottoman cities. That's why they would send Armenians, yeah. right? But that changes in the 19th century as there is peace between the two states. Uh, another thing that I think is really important in terms of the 19th century developments is this concept of citizenship. So I think one response to this kind of plural legal system where you could have you know, uh, you could form shop, go to different courts, or, you know, become sort of, you know, in between trans-imperial subjects, is that, you know, the Ottoman Empire starts imposing these citizenship laws. So, for example, if, you know, um, a Greek girl marries, you know, a European, a Frenchman, uh, the question of, you know, whether their children are considered Ottoman subjects or not become very important. So the Ottoman state starts imposing you know, citizen laws on its own citizens. You have to decide whether you're a European subject or an Ottoman. So slowly in the second half of the 19th century, you have the emergence of the notion of citizenship, sovereignty, that is very similar to the European notions. So if we turn to the Safavid Empire, when we look at this, uh, you know, I, to be honest, don't know that much about Safavid uh, trading policy. But uh, one of the things they did is kind of, you know, uh, take this Armenian minority and turn them into an official kind of trading arm of the empire. And that these people, you know, perhaps as much as, you know, having these open port cities were as responsible for kind of the trading presence of the Safavids. And it seems like when we keep looking through the 18th and 19th century, kind of the, the state, the ability for the state to control these minority or uh, non-Muslim uh, trading diasporas is incredibly important. And I'm just wondering, like, how does, you know, what, what's, I guess, the interconnection between kind of a port city and these non-Muslim networks? You know, what what is the Safavid comparison, if there is one? Sorry, these are very broad questions. No, I think that's an excellent question, because I think what happens in the case of the Safavids is that as they try to redirect the silk trade, let's say from Anatolia to the Persian Gulf, because they want, you know, to use, you know, um, trade as a weapon against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans have placed earlier on a ban on silk trade. So when Shah Abbas comes to power, he's in Isfahan. He's trying to turn Isfahan into a major international city and center of silk trade, you know, as opposed to Tabriz, which was in the northwest, you know, and you know, Anatolia was very important. So he's trying to encourage European traders to purchase silk directly from the Safavids, right, in Isfahan and through Hormuz. So Hormuz is the major port of Isfahan. So what does he do? He gives 
similar ahnames to the European traders, to the Dutch, to the English, and then to the French. So he's looking at the Ottoman model, and he's you know kind of trying to attract European traders to his ports, to the port of Hormuz, and then to Isfahan by granting the same privileges that the Ottoman rulers like you know Mehmet II, Suleiman had granted to the Europeans. So it becomes a model that is also you know uh, very important for the Safavids. And you're absolutely right that the Safavids are actively trying to attract you know these Europeans and these merchant diasporas to their port cities. So they move Armenians from Jolfa to Isfahan and create a neighborhood for them and say, now you're going to be in charge of the silk trade. So the state is actively engaged in redirecting the silk trade and it's also favoring one community over the other. So they don't mind having these merchant diasporas. And the reason the Armenians become very important is not because the Muslims didn't know how to trade and they're not active. It's because the Shiites are being persecuted in the Ottoman Empire. It's just like, you know, if you're a Muslim merchant, you're going to be persecuted in Marseille. Right, so it's the same, you know, a very similar situation. Then, what are what recommendations do you have for uh, future researchers? What 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 should they do? What should they? I think we sh- we need to engage in more comparative studies. Yeah, we shouldn't just look at you know one one port, you know, or the case of one group of merchants. That has been the tendency in our field, right? So we need to ask you know uh, bigger questions. We need to challenge some of these you know dominant paradigms. I think in terms of the archives, we need to look at both European archives and Ottoman archives. You know, the Ottoman archives tends to be ignored when it comes, you know, to trade and the history of poor cities. Most people like to go to France and, you know, to the Dutch archives because they are maybe more accessible. But I think there's a lot more in the Ottoman archives that we haven't explored. So we need to kind of strike a balance and use, you know, different sets of archives. But more importantly, I think we have to kind of think against the dominant paradigms and, uh, you know, challenge some of these issues and, you know, maybe be more creative. Thank you again, Fariba, for coming on the podcast, you know, really giving us a good in-depth look at your research. And I think the challenges that and the opportunities that are there for researchers that want to kind of go back, relook at the connection between um, trade, economic history, and legal history. And I think uh, this is a great... Uh, way of kind of using the capitulations to really open up the topic. Um, and we're very much look forward to re- reading more of your research very soon. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. And um, yeah, this was really wonderful. And uh, I think, you know, you are, you're now encouraging me to, to go ahead and finish this project and, you know, write it. That's, that's the challenge that I'm facing. Thank you. For those of you that would like to know more about uh, the topics we discussed today, uh, Fariba will provide us with a short select uh, bibliography of relevant sources and other places that you can look. Tune in again next time for another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you.